Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without having to commit to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressure of trying to be entertaining. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial insofar as the ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson of the Air Force's Defense Counsel Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region. Please join me as I pour myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. For this week's update on the law, we're going to look at the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces' first decision of the term, United States v. Moritaya. After that, our focus on advocacy will look at laying the foundation for an excited utterance. The Morataya case involved a guilty plea for bank fraud under 18 U.S.C. 1344, as incorporated through Article 134. Broadly speaking, that statute prohibits executing or attempting to execute a scheme to defraud a financial institution such as a bank or credit union. The scheme at issue in this case centered around a bank loan executed by an acquaintance, or some might say co-conspirator, of the appellant. Now, I will tell you at the outset that there is not enough facts set out in this opinion or the opinion below to satisfy my curiosity or, in my view, the factual basis for the guilty plea. But both the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals and the CAF felt differently and found the guilty plea was provident. The factual basis for the plea was an arrangement between the appellant and Boson's mate second class Whiskey. Another brief aside, the Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals made up the name Whiskey to avoid using initials, so the CAF used Boson's mate Whiskey as well. I kind of like that tactic because I hate using the initials, and I hope that it catches on with the other appellate courts. Okay, back to the facts. In addition to serving in the Navy, the appellant had a side hustle of flipping houses for profit. She needed money for her house flipping business, but did not believe she would qualify for a loan. BM2 Whiskey was interested in investing in the appellant's house flipping business, but he did not have the cash to do so. Therefore, the appellant and Whiskey came up with a plan where Whiskey would take out a loan from the credit union for the purported purpose of purchasing the appellant's 2009 Kia Rio. Whiskey would then give that money to the appellant for her use in her house flipping business as his investment. In order to affect their scheme, the appellant duly transferred the title and registration of the 2009 Kia Rio to BM2 Whiskey upon accomplishing the loan with the credit union. So, as I read the cases, the credit union loaned BM2 Whiskey $8,900 for the purchase of the Kia, BM2 Whiskey gave that money to the appellant, and the appellant then transferred ownership of the Kia to BM2 Whiskey. Although never mentioned, at least not directly, Presumably, the credit union took a valid security interest, or a lien, on the vehicle, because it was the collateral for the loan. As you may have guessed, on appeal, the appellant asserted that her guilty plea was improvident because it did not establish any fraud upon the credit union. After all, the credit union was enticed to loan the money to BM2 Whiskey based on Whiskey's promise to repay the loan 
together with the security interest in the vehicle, both of which occurred. Ultimately, the CAF focused not on the actual facts, but instead, it focused on what was in appellant's mind and heart. The court found that the appellant's plea was provident based on her conceived attempt to defraud the credit union. The appellant admitted at trial that the vehicle sale was essentially a sham and that she did not actually give BM2 Whiskey physical possession of the vehicle until months later. That, together with her and Whiskey's knowledge that the motivation for the loan was to raise money for the house flipping business and not the sale of the vehicle, was purportedly enough to establish her intent to defraud the credit union. Thus, according to CAF, quote, it is irrelevant whether or not appellant actually sold her vehicle to BM2 Whiskey when she transferred title to him, end of quote. There are two important takeaways from this case that were thoughtfully provided by the producer of litigator libations, Major Alan Abrams. But before I get to those, I have to state that this case is, and I use this word purposefully, stupid. It essentially holds that you can perform a perfectly legal act with no harm to any other person or entity, but still be guilty of a federal crime based on your bad thoughts. It is a thought crime. I say this because there is nothing to indicate that the credit union cared who physically possessed the car or what appellant did with the money. The credit union got what it bargained for. Whiskey's promise to pay and a lien on the vehicle as collateral for the loan. There is nothing that would prevent BM2 Whiskey from loaning his car to the appellant forever, let alone the couple of months before he took physical possession of the vehicle. Also, because there is no indication that there was an existing lien on the vehicle, there was no limit as to what appellant could do with the proceeds of the title transfer, and thus she was free to use that money for her house flipping business. At bottom, this was a perfectly valid way for the appellant and Whiskey to raise money that they wanted to use for the house flipping business even if they didn't know it and thought that they were coming up with some clever trick to raise money. It is shocking to me that the trial court accepted the guilty plea, and even worse, that the appellate court upheld it. It displays a deep misunderstanding of how capitalism works and what the bank fraud statute was meant to criminalize. Okay, back to helpful guidance for trial practitioners. Here are two takeaways from the case. First, the case demonstrates the extremely broad discretion that is afforded military judges in conducting providence inquiries. The CAF cites United States v. Care, of course, United States v. Faircloth, United States v. Caldwell, and United States v. Price to drive home the point that trial judges are obligated to dig into the facts and that they have a lot of leeway in the questions that they can ask when doing that. Be prepared for judges to do just that and devise case strategies to either object to improper questions from the court or to work through potential client answers or other issues that may arise. The second takeaway is that the law is not clear when it comes to what trial judges must advise an accused regarding the elements of an attempt offense when the offense is not alleged under Article 80 but is instead alleged under Article 134 that is assimilating a Title 18 offense. The court recognized this tension and dismisses it in footnote 4 of the Moritaya decision, but the rejection is hard to follow. Footnote 4 references United States v. Shell, 72 MJ 339, which was decided by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in 2013. The CAF distinguishes Shell by pointing out that, quote, here the substantive bank fraud statute incorporates attempt as an avenue of liability, end of quote. It then also cites to the statute. But the statute at issue in Shell was 18 U.S.C. 2422b, 
and it also incorporates attempt as an avenue of liability. That statute, 18 U.S.C. 2422b, makes it a crime to knowingly entice a person under 18 years old to engage in sexual activity if that sexual activity would amount to a crime. As stated, the wording of the statute sets out the offense and then adds a clause stating, or attempts to do so. Therefore, it is not immediately obvious as to the distinction the court is trying to make. In Shell, as in Mortaya, the court focused on a Title 18 statute prosecuted through Article 134, and both statutes allowed for a finding of guilt based upon an attempt. In Shell, the court decided that there was a substantial basis to question the guilty plea because the trial judge failed to instruct the appellant that a substantial step was required to effectuate the attempt even though the appellant clearly admitted facts during his guilty plea colloquy that were sufficient to prove that he took a substantial step, or several substantial steps. Yet, in Mortaya, where basically the same thing happened, it was not a problem. In Mortaya, the court said that the trial judge did enough to cor- by correctly referencing attempt as a mode of liability, but the trial judge in Shell did that as well. The court in Mortaya also found the guilty plea provident because the appellant stated facts in the providence inquiry that amounted to substantial steps. But again, that also happened in Shell. Although the court claims the cases are distinguishable, it does a poor job of explaining how they are distinguishable. As best I can tell, the difference is that in Mortaya, the court felt that the appellant's, quote, attempt to execute a scheme, end of quote, amounted to a substantive offense, whereas in Shell, the appellant was actually enticing an adult member of law enforcement, and therefore his conduct did not amount to the substantive offense. But this is just me speculating because it is not at all made clear in the footnote. Also, because the enticement statute also includes attempts, arguably, the actual age of the person being enticed would not matter so long as the perpetrator believed them to be under the age of 18. So what do we do with this issue going forward? Perhaps you can argue that where the government alleges the commission of an assimilated federal offense that allows for a guilty finding under an attempt theory and the government seeks to prove guilt based on that attempt theory, then the specification must allege both that the accused had the specific intent to consummate the offense, and that the accused took a substantial step towards committing the offense. Where the government fails to do so, perhaps a motion to dismiss for failure to allege an offense would be appropriate. Turning to our advocacy focus, we're going to talk about laying the foundation for an excited utterance. To quote Military Rule of Evidence 8032, an excited utterance relates to a startling event or condition made while the declarant was under the stress of excitement that it caused. As reiterated by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, there are three things that must be established for this exception to the hearsay rule. First, the statement must be spontaneous or excited, rather than, quote, the product of reflection and deliberation, end of quote. Second, the event that caused the statement must be startling, And third, the person who made the statement had to have been under the stress of the excitement caused by the event when they made the statement. Because it always makes things more complicated, the Military Evidentiary Foundations Handbook breaks this down to five elements. One, an event occurred. Two, the event was startling, or at least stressful. Three, the declarant had personal knowledge of the event. Four, the declarant made the statement about the event. And five, the declarant made the statement while in a state of nervous excitement. Before walking through an example foundation, there are three things to keep in mind when it comes to excited utterances. First, as with any hearsay exception, admissibility under Rule of Evidence 803 does not mean that there can't be an objection based on the Confrontation Clause. 
you'll see that where the statement is being offered by the prosecution, the statement is testimonial, and the person who made the statement is not available for cross-examination. Second, as the Military Evidentiary Foundation's handbook acknowledges, the requirement that the statement is in reference to the startling event is not always strictly enforced. It's not hard to imagine a scenario where someone is triggered by a startling event to make a statement about something other than the specific event. For instance, if a person held a gun to a person's head and yelled, where is the money? It is likely that any excited utterance would be about the location of the money rather than the gun being pointed at their head. Either statement, however, could be an excited utterance. Third, keep in mind what you are trying to do, as that will have a big impact on how you structure your questions and how much you drill down on the details. Overall, when you are seeking to introduce a statement that is an excited utterance, you are trying to build up the statement's credibility based on the combination of the stress of the moment and the limited time between the stressful event and the statement being made. But how you proceed may differ from how you might normally walk through a narrative event. When asking a witness to explain an event, you can usually zoom in or zoom out with your questions without regard to the order in which the information is provided. For instance, if you are trying to have a witness explain how she caught a foul ball at a baseball game, you can either walk through what happened before the foul ball, or you can start by zooming in on the foul ball and then zoom out to capture the details of the event, depending on what best conveys the point or best moves your story forward. Okay, so that's a normal examination. But excited utterances aren't quite so flexible in how they can be structured because without the proper foundation, the utterance is inadmissible hearsay and objectionable. Therefore, you must focus on all of the surrounding details as the gateway that you must build before you can get to the critical fact, the statement that would otherwise be hearsay. So in structuring your sequence of questions and building up the credibility of the statement, you are normally going to have to get into the weeds a bit. Normally, this will go from the scene, to the person, to the statement. You first focus on the surrounding scene, what happened, and how it happened, so that the testimony suggests that the event was startling or stressful. From these external, objective data points, you can then start moving towards the person and their subjective emotional state. You focus on the person who made the statement, addressing the observable facts that could be seen and heard that indicate the declarant was startled, scared, or excited to include how close in time the statement was made following the startling event. Going deep into the details will make it objectively and subjectively more believable. There are many examples of how this might play out in a case. Often we see it used in the immediate aftermath of an event with the alleged victim. But here is a slightly different example where the defense may be laying a foundation for an excited utterance. Imagine you've got a pediatrician talking to a parent who is being accused of physically abusing his infant. The infant was brought in to the hospital for what the parent thought was dehydration. The defense is seeking to bring out the statement that the parent made to the doctor when he was informed that the child was a victim of abuse. Dr. Nettles, let's focus on that moment when you first told Erman Baker that his son's condition was far worse than just dehydration. When was this in relation to when Airman Baker's son was first medevaced from the emergency room to your hospital by helicopter? It was the morning after. Had anyone told him about the diagnosis before that point? No, that was my job. How did Airman Baker appear when you first started talking to him? He looked sad, both tired and sad. He was looking down a lot. When you told him about his son's injuries, 
Did Aaron Baker have any kind of reaction in terms of his facial expression? His eyes grew wide and his jaw dropped open about a half an inch. Was there any sort of physical reaction or movements that you observed? He put his hands on top of his head for a moment, then slid his hands down to his face. Then he just sprang up from his chair. When you say he sprang up, what do you mean? He got up very quickly. His hands had come down his face, and when they reached his legs, he just sprang up. He turned away from me and immediately started pacing the room. How did he appear to you? Well, I don't know Aaron Baker before that, or I didn't know Aaron Baker before that discussion, but based on all of those reactions, it seemed like he was agitated. How did he appear in terms of his stress level, if you could tell? He appeared very stressed. And why do you say that? Again, just based on all of those physical reactions that I just described. Was that a change from what you had saw before you told him the extent of his son's injuries? Yes. And a yes-no question. Did Aaron Baker say anything? Yes. Before getting into the substance of what Aaron Baker said, how soon did he say this in relation to the news that you'd given him about his son? Seconds. You said seconds. Could you be more precise, perhaps with a range? Maybe two to five seconds. After those two to five seconds, when Aaron Baker first spoke, how did he sound? I would say stressed. And why do you say that? We had spoken briefly before I gave him the news. He had seemed down earlier. His speech was slow. He seemed worried about his son before. But now he seemed to be speaking quickly. His voice was low, but he was speaking very fast. And what did he say? He just kept saying, how could she hide this from me? Notice how much we dug into the details of the scenario to tee it up both in regards to what was going on before and after the excitable event. Here, the revelation of the nature of the child's injuries. In building up the stress arising from this news, we focused on Aaron Baker's body language and physical appearance. You might also get into his manner of speaking. With this sort of information, the examination is similar to the foundation for lay opinion evidence related to demeanor that we discussed in the previous episode. Thinking about this example also illustrates the utility of this sort of evidence. Sure, it could be evidence that stands on its own, but in concert with other evidence, it might be used to rebut impeachment or effectively to bolster your client's credibility. In our scenario, it points to a defense, that somebody else committed the offense, without the client having to testify. And it does that so close in time to the startling event that it is more difficult for the government to attack the statement as fabricated. That said, it's important to keep in mind the potential avenues for attacking excited utterances. The first line of attack is likely regarding their admissibility at all, but even when deemed admissible, the weight or probative value of the evidence may still be attacked. Areas you may wish to examine include whether the person who made the statement was physically and mentally capable of understanding what was happening and what they were trying to convey. That's basically the Bowen case how stressful or shocking the event was that sparked the excited utterance. Depending on the nature of the statement and the psychological attributes of the declarant, there may be arguments that the declarant was overwhelmed or confused, which may impact the probative value of the utterance. Also consider how much time has passed since the startling event. The more time that passes, the less likely the statement is admissible as an excited utterance. 
But even if it is admissible, that time may allow for an attack on the spontaneity and veracity of the statement. Did enough time pass such that there was time to develop a motive to fabricate? Finally, even if there is no time at all, is the pre-existing bias or motive to fabricate such that the veracity is still called into question? For instance, in our example, if there was persuasive evidence that the client had caused some of the child's injuries, the government might argue that the client was just waiting for an opportunity to direct blame elsewhere. Therefore, his excited utterance was not as a result of the shock of being informed of his child's injuries, but simply the first opportunity he had to avoid responsibility. Okay, that wraps up Excited Utterances. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And will you please say hello to the friends that I know It won't be long And they'll be happy to know That you saw me go, I won't